1: God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. What did the psalmist say in 139 verses 7 through 10? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the othermost
0: parts of the sea, even there your hand shall guide me, your right hand shall hold me fast. Have you ever felt alone, lost, or in need of guidance? In today's message, Pastor Dave reminds us that God is omnipresent. That means He is everywhere, including always with you. There's nowhere you can go where God isn't already there, ready to offer His love, comfort, and wisdom. He is always there for you. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of Acts, chapter 17, as he begins his message The Unknown God.
1: Throughout history, many soldiers have died in wars without their remains being identified. Following the First World War, a movement arose to commemorate these soldiers in a single tomb containing the body of these unidentified soldiers. This tomb is called the Unknown Soldier Tomb, or the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, and it was established during this time. As I said, these tombs typically contain remains of a dead soldier who was unidentified, and sometimes the inscription says, known but to God. Such tombs can be found, believe it or not, in almost every nation. 43 countries, 43 nations have such tombs that honor these unknown soldiers. These tombs have become shrines of sort and they are visited by many, many people and they serve a reminder of the high cost of war in any country. But man has always looked to shrines. We even have shrines in this day and age. I can think of a couple. If you go out Route 50 or Route 47 or Route 9 or route whatever, you'll come across. various shrines set up where people go and they worship. People go and they maybe meet God. We don't know. They go there and honor or even worship these things. There was a shrine in Athens in the first century. There was a shrine that Paul saw while he was visiting Athens on his second missionary tour. And he he saw this shrine and it had a very, very strange inscription to him. It said, to the unknown God. To the unknown God. Now we studied last week in our message on Sunday morning that the, the Athenians already had so many shrines and, and so many altars and so many places of worship because they had so many different gods. It was estimated that of the 10,000 people that lived in Athens at that time, there were no less than 30,000 shrines or altars set up for these gods that they worshiped. The sight of these shrines drove the Apostle Paul bonkers. When he saw these shrines, these, these idols that he called them, He inside he was provoked by his spirit, it says, and it caused him great dis- distress, even to the point of exasperation. What was Paul angry about? Paul was angry about the lie that was being fed to these unsuspecting citizens. He was angry about the lie that was being fed to him on one hand, These idols represented the hunger for God that the Athenians had. They had a hunger for God. I mean, look at all the things that they worship. But it demonstrated that they were truly ignorant of who God really was, the one true living God. They were without knowledge. They were void of understanding. We read last week in Acts 16 verses, excuse me, Acts 17 verses 16 and 17. Now, while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Paul took this occasion to reason with those who were gathered in the synagogue and then he dialogued with those in the marketplace. What did he say? Well, he told them about Christ. He told them about Christ, Christ crucified, Christ risen from the dead. He told them the gospel message. But when he was in the marketplace, he met a couple of interesting groups and we talked about them at length last week. These philosophers, these Epicureans and these Stoics. These two philosophies together represented the popular pagan alternatives for dealing with the plight of humanity without Jesus Christ. We've said to this born before, that man was destined to worship, and man was designed to worship, and man will find an object to worship, regardless of what that object is. Man was built with a need to worship something. Look at all the idols that they had in Athens. Look at all these shrines and altars that were built up. But these two philosophy group, they had an alternative to Christ. One was Epicureanism, who were basically atheists, and they had a simple lifestyle, and their motto was, enjoy life, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And then there was the Stoics, or the Stoicism. They were pantheists. In other words, everything was God. Everything that existed was God, and all they cared about was the matter that that made up life. Their motto, endure life. Let's get through this. These guys and ladies were considered highly intelligent. They were highly, highly intelligent and esteemed by their peers for their philosophical views, but they lacked knowledge of the one true God. They lacked knowledge of the one true living God. So when they heard Paul speak and they heard this new doctrine, an interest was built up in them, which, which is a good thing. An interest was built up, spurred up in them, and they wanted to hear more. We read when we left off last week in verses 19 and 21, it says, And they took him and brought him to the Argo saying, May we know this new doctrine of which you speak, for we, you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. What a way to waste your time away hanging around just looking for something new. Let's 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 just find out something new. And we had a great discussion about that last week. So as we begin our study this morning, we find Paul in the middle of this Aeropagus. It's commonly known as Mars Hill. It's commonly known as Mars Hill. And here he is surrounded by all these philosophers, these great thinkers. However, let's make it clear here, Paul is not on trial. This is not a time of trial. He was brought to this place. He was brought to this place so that he could tell his doctrine because they wanted to hear this new thing. They were into this new stuff. And Paul, being who he was, was more than happy to oblige them. He was more than happy to come out and give them what he knew would be the keys to eternal life. Several things we can look at here. First of all was Paul's composure. Paul was a very, very composed man. Here he is in the center, bless you, here he is in the center of culture and education. He's surrounded by thousands of idols and statues. R. Kent Hughes says this The Athenian mindset was always in pursuit of the nouveau, the dazzling, the sensational, the whims of the hour. So now the crowd brought Paul before the council of heirs. On one side was the Doric Temple, known as the Theseum. And on the other side, in the upper city, you had the Acropolis and the matchless Parthenon. Around him loomed thousands of statues and altars in gold, silver, and bronze. Paul stood in the midst of these symbols of of departed greatness. And with the gods of Greece staring down upon him, and immediately before him sat the most exclusive philosophical review board in the ancient world, unquote. No pressure, Paul. Uh, No pressure. This didn't even faze Paul one bit. This didn't even bother him. I'd have been, my knees would have been knocking together. I mean, my, I would have been so scared of what I was going to say. Because Paul was not only composed, but the reason for Paul's composure was he was divinely empowered by the Holy Spirit. He was divinely empowered by the Holy Spirit. Paul had the faith in the message that he had been given by Christ. He had faith in the message giver. He had faith in Jesus Christ, and that made him bold. We can learn a lot here when we go to witness someone, especially in a large crowd of people that we don't know or maybe people that we're intimidated by. Paul was distressed, but he didn't let this deter him. This is the key to witnessing. Many times we're going to be faced with contrary opinions. Many times we're going to be maybe witnessing in adverse conditions. We need to rely on the Holy Spirit for composure. We need to rely on him for strength for self-discipline and self-control. If we get caught up in the emotions of what's going on and the sinful lifestyles and the heresy we might be hearing, we can become ineffective. We need to maintain the upper hand in the conversation. We're the light of the world, Christ said. We need to respond in love rather than judgment. We need to respond with the love of Christ rather than the judgment of Christ. So many people Right away, when we see these things, want to condemn, they want to judge. If the people you're talking to feel any kind of judgment coming from you, they'll turn you off in a heartbeat, and they will not listen to you. And your words will be for naught. Notice how Paul takes advantage of this situation, as he does in every situation. We can learn so much from the Apostle Paul. Some have called this sermon a failure, some have said this sermon was a large failure simply because it didn't produce the overabundant of, of souls that were saved, like in Thessalonica or in Berea. But I disagree. I think we see here a remarkable approach to witnessing, and as F.F. F. Bruce calls it, a masterful piece of communication. Paul was certainly distressed by what he saw and the visual appearance of these idols But he kept himself in check with the beginning of his speech. He didn't blast these people with scripture, beating them down and thrashing the fact that they worshiped idols, even running down the idols that they worship. No. His approach was astounding. It was astonishing to me. He begins by complimenting them. He begins by throwing out a compliment. Let's look at verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Ergo Pagus and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're very religious. Hey, guys, you're really religious. You guys got to go in the right way. You're really religious. What an interesting way to begin this speech. I'm sure Paul was, knowing Paul the way I do through Scripture, he was chomping at the bit to tell these guys about Jesus and protest the fact that they're idolaters. But he restrained himself, and he found common ground. He found common ground by which to speak. Have you ever been in a conversation when you found common ground and speak to somebody and common ground comes up? I had the honor and the privilege at the Atlantic City Rescue Mission years ago to witness with a buddy of mine to a Muslim. And the Muslim's main problem was the name of Jesus. So we witnessed to this guy for an hour and a half, and all we talked about was God's grace. Have you ever, ever experienced God's grace? Do you know what God's grace is? Have you experienced? I said, yeah, I do experience it. And we went on and on and on about the grace of God and how we're forgiven. But we went on and on and on. And finally, at the end of that half hour, we were finished and they were calling them back. And he sat there. He says, what do I do now? And we went, oh, we have a name for God's grace. His name's Jesus. And we left him with that. But to think that I would witness to somebody for an hour and a half and never, never, ever use the name Jesus, I was like, wow. But we planted so many seeds because he understood God's grace. He knew what God's grace was. Paul finds common ground. Athenians, you're religious. Well, sure, they worship thousands of gods in all kinds of different ways. But with all their intelligence, with all their culture, with all their architectural beauty, with all their wisdom... They didn't know the one true living God. And Paul pointed directly to the problem. Yes, you're religious, but you have no relationship with God. How wonderful that you are religious and you practice all these rituals. You go to the temples and and these shrines and you do this and you do that and you do this, but you don't have a relationship with the true living God. You have no relationship because you're ignorant. You're without knowledge of God and, and, and his character. We encounter people like this all the time. They're ignorant of God and his character because they don't know him. They don't have a relationship with him. Are you religious or do you have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ? Paul continues in verse 23. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Paul points directly to their problem. You don't know God. The Greek words used here are agnostico, agnosto theo, the unknown God. Agnostico or agnosto is the root word where we get the word agnostic. Agnosticism basically means without knowledge, being lacking knowledge. It's interesting here that these Athenian philosophers claimed to know everything worth knowing, but they fell short of knowing God. They knew everything that there was to know in the world, but they didn't know God. What makes even more interesting is Paul didn't have to say that. They did. They inscribed it on the altar. They inscribed the fact that they didn't know who God was. Paul's telling them to say, "Hey, wait a minute, guys. I found this altar you wrote on it to the unknown god. I'm going to make him known to you." You think they got the irony? You think they understood the irony of what Paul was trying to say? I kind of do. But in the speech that follows, Paul introduces these men to the living God and points out five characteristics to them. He shows them God's greatness. He shows them God's goodness. He shows them God's government. He shows them God's glory, and he finally leads them into God's grace. In verse 24, Paul begins with God's greatness as seen through his creation. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temple made with hands. Paul says to him, the unknown God that you worship... I'm gonna proclaim him to you today. He's the God who made heaven and earth. He's the God who made the world. What did these philosophers do when they sat around together? Most of them probably contemplated. Hmm. Where did we come from? Why are we here? What's the purpose of life? Why is there air? Why is there this? That's what these philosophers do. They sit around and they, 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 they come up with all these philosophical questions. Wiersbe said this. He said, science attempts to answer the question, where did we come from, while philosophy wrestles with the question, why are we here? But only Christianity has the answers to all the questions. All the questions that you might ask. Christianity has the answers to them. He's surrounded by these philosophers. Some of them are Epicureans, saying that all that exists is matter. Some are Stoics that are saying everything is God. Paul says, no, no, in the beginning, God. He's the Lord. He made everything that we are. He made heaven and earth because he's the Lord of all. And he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. All these shrines you have are man-made. God doesn't dwell here. He's too great to be housed in temples made by men. Solomon knew this. Solomon said this in 1 Kings 8, 27. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold... Heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain him. How much less the temple which I have built? God doesn't dwell in a temple made with hands. David Guzik says this It was important for Solomon to recognize that though God had a special presence in the temple, he was far too great to be restricted from the temple. We get together and we feel God's presence, don't we? We feel him moving among us because he promised that wherever two or three are gathered, he appeared in their midst. We feel his presence. But God is not restricted to this building. God is not restricted to a temple. If the only time you feel God is here, we need to talk. That's what he's saying here. God's not restricted. God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. What did the psalmist say in 139, verses 7 through 10? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the othermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall guide me, your right hand shall hold me fast. People think that God only dwells in places, or you can only meet God in a sanctuary. I had someone come to me. Unfortunately, they're not with us anymore. When we first decided to move over to the Breakwater Plaza, when we first had our plans a couple years ago, they came to me and said, that place will always be a building, it'll never be a church. And we can't move here because this is a church and this is where God is. I said, oh, you're sorely mistaken. You are sorely mistaken because God is everywhere. God is everywhere. And those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth and in love. God is omnipresence. God will meet you wherever you are. In fact, when you're born again, God takes the worry man out of you because he places the Holy Spirit inside you. The actual presence of God is now in you. Where can I go from God? Nowhere. Because He's there. I mean, we have this beautiful song that we sing. This is the air I breathe. Your holy presence living in me. God is with us, and He's truly a good God, which brings us to our next point. We looked at God's greatness as creator, and now we're going to look at God's goodness as provider. Look what He says in verse 25. "'Nor is he worship with men's hands "'as though he needed anything "'since he gives to all life, breath, and all things.' Peter, speaking of God's goodness and divine power, says this in 2 Peter 1.3. As his God's divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. God has supplied us everything we need to live the Christian life. God has given us everything for life and godliness. He's given us all the things we need for the abundance of this Christian life. And this abundant life only comes from the knowledge of God. Man will tell you what you need to do to succeed. Man will tell you what you need to do to get better, to get happy, to take care of all your problems, to take care of your debts, to take care of this, to take care of that. Man will tell you all those things. Go to a self-help store or a self-help aisle of the bookstore and look. Actually, it's not one aisle. It's about 19. How-to, 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 how-to. Life for dummies. There's a a how-to book on everything. Man will tell you exactly what you need to know. Why would I trust man? Why would I trust in what man has to say? I can't trust in man and because through God's word, I draw closer to him and I get more knowledge of him. And he has given me all things for life and godliness. Only he knows exactly what I need because he is ever with me. God has given me everything that pertains to my spiritual life, a life of godliness, a life of abundance that only comes through knowing him. How important do you know God? How do you get to know God? You get to know God through his revelation in his word. God has revealed himself to us in his word. We talked about the word speaking of Jesus Christ. God reveals himself to us and directs us to his son, Jesus Christ. When Paul told the Greeks this, it completely wiped out the religious system. It completely decimated it. Paul's saying it's God who gives you what you need. He gives you all things for life. He gives you all things for godliness. He gives us the air we breathe. He gives us the breath we take. James says that he's the source of every good and perfect gift in James one seventeen. James 1.17. Matthew declares that God gives us life, and he sustains that life by his goodness in Matthew 5.45. The apostle Paul would later write to the Roman believers that it is the goodness of God that leads man to repentance in Romans 2, verse 4. But the Greeks were guilty of worshiping the creation rather than the creator. They glorified man instead of God because they were ignorant. They didn't know God. This is true today, folks. Man is being lifted up. God is being pushed aside and man is being glorified. Man's way is being glorified and God's way is being pushed to one side. Many, many, many people care more what man has to say than what God has to say. And they've decided to believe the lie. We're placing our apples in the wrong cart. Paul tells the Athenians of God's greatness as a creator. He tells them of God's goodness as a provider. And in verses 26 and 27, he tells them of God's government because he's the ruler of all things. You are sure hope.
0: You've been listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave. Pastor Dave has been making his way through the book of Acts, an exciting adventure into the beginnings of the Christian church. These first few days, weeks, months, and years of the Christian ministry were filled with much faith and courage. In fact, the very first martyrs were mentioned in this book. It was an interesting time in history for sure, and just like today, some people were eager to hear about Jesus, and others were looking to put those down who follow after him. What are some of the things that have stood out to you about today's message? We'd like to hear about it. Would you give us a call? Let us know how this message has impacted you. Our number is 609-884-5821. Once more, that number is 609-884-5821. If you're in the Cape May area, you're invited to join us at Calvary Chapel, Cape May. A Sure Hope is a ministry out of Calvary Chapel, Cape May, and we'd like to get to know you and worship God together this weekend. Check out AsureHopeRadio.com to find out service times. Again, that's AsureHopeRadio.com. And if you can't make it in person, we stream our services live to Facebook and YouTube. Just look for the links at AsureHopeRadio.com. That's all the time we have for today. But we hope you'll join us again on the next edition. Pastor Dave will continue on in the book of Acts, helping you understand and appreciate this great book here on Asure Hope.
1: Bye.